Welcome to the latest edition of the American Farriers Journal podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by SmartPak of Plymouth, Massachusetts. From the feed room to the tack room, SmartPak offers innovative solutions to support healthy horses, improve hoof quality, and encourage happy riders. I'm Frank Lassiter, editor of American Farriers Journal. Today's podcast offers a conversation with one of the United States Army's horseshoers when horses and mules were still an important part of our country's defense efforts. For this episode, we sat down with Ken Manko of Cannonsburg, Michigan, as he recalls his experiences from decades ago in shoeing Army mules. This morning, we're talking with Ken Manko, who's a veteran uh, farrier from Kensburg, Michigan. And uh, Ken, welcome this morning. We're delighted to uh, share some of your experiences with our audience. You Not only have you been a farrier for many years, but you were an Army farrier, and you've also been an uh, innovator in inventing the um, propane forge. So, Ken, tell us a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up, and how'd you get interested in horses? Well, I grew up in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, when I was about 12 years old, I got tied up with a guy that was a horse trader, and I was a city boy. But anyway, got tied up with him and um, started riding some horses for him. And I had a grandfather that knew a little bit about training horses and straightening out bad habits. And I would tell him what's going on with a horse, and he would tell me some tricks to try with it. And uh, so I ended up riding horses for this guy for four or five years. And... uh Till I was in high school, and then I started running around with a saddle in the trunk of my car and riding a few horses here and there for other people. And uh, when I got out of high school, I tried. I was going to go to Michigan State at Jack McCallan's uh, sure. for horseshoers, and uh, the class of '54 was full, so I signed up on a waiting list for the class of '55. And in the meantime, there was a ad in the paper for the Army that was looking for people that knew something about horses and mules for this mule outfit in Colorado. So checked in on that, and the guy said, well, I can't guarantee you I get you a horseshoe in school, but I can guarantee you I get you in this mule outfit. So I, I put my name on the line and ended up at... Uh, Took my basic training at Fort Carson and then ended up at the mule barns at Fort Carson. And uh, after I was there a few weeks, I wiggled my way into sweeping the floors in the shoeing shop. And that summer we took 55, we took 300 mules to, uh, that was the summer of 1955. We took 300 mules to uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. So I worked in the shop that, that summer helping shoe the horses for that trip or the mules for that trip. There was a few horses, but mostly mules. And then when we got back in the fall, they ran a class at uh, Fort Carson, and Sergeant Forney was the instructor. And there was three of us, uh, Howard Creed, Paul Marquardt, and myself, took the shoeing course. And the next spring, I was the first platoon horseshoer. Wow. Yeah. So Fort Fort Carson, where is that in uh, Colorado? Just south of Colorado Springs. Okay. Now, you mentioned Michigan State and how you would kind of look there. And I'm a Michigan State grad. And I my, my first some, uh, quarter at Michigan State was in 1957. And that's just about the time that Jack quit teaching his uh, farrier uh, program, I think. Right, right. It was right in that time. And um, um, 
I think Jack was the instructor there for 45 years. Wow. Right. And then uh, they ran the course with, um, I'm trying to think of the kid's name that ran it. But he ran it, they ran it for four or five years after Jack retired mm-hmm. and, the, and then dropped the course. Yeah. yeah. At one time, all the Shuwan schools in the United States, the instructors had taken Jack's course at Michigan State. Wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I never I never got to meet the gentleman. So. Oh, he was a great guy. Yeah, he was. I, I, w- I was there when he was there later on, but I just never yeah. put it together then. So you're a city boy, and uh, Cannonsburg is how many miles from Grand Rapids? Not that far. No, 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 12, 15 miles. Yeah, okay, city right. Limits, yeah. Right. So I know that you've uh, got a mule of your own, or you had one, so you're, I, I didn't realize that your mule career started real early in life. Yeah, I did. I was yeah, 19 years old. Right. Yeah, I got introduced to mules in the Army, and they're different disposition, and and uh, but we had, we had a good time. We had when I got there, uh, they had about they were right on the verge of whether to get rid of the mules or keep try to keep them going. And the helicopters were coming in, and but the helicopters still had had problems, and uh, so they decided to try to keep the mules for another. And they did for a couple of years. But mm-hmm. we had sixty we had sixty some mules in the third platoon that had never been there for two to three years and never been broke. Wow. And after they did this thing in the paper, they got a lot of guys, so young young men came and, and got in that outfit. And uh, so the first, first job was to uh, start breaking those mules to lead and to uh, pack. And mm-hmm. it was quite a rodeo. So these mules were mainly used as pack animals? Mainly pack animals. Few few in the harness for pulling wagons and stuff. And then there was two outfits, the 35th Quartermaster Pack in in A Battery 4th Field Artillery Pack. In the 4th Field, uh, the mules were led by one man, one, man, one mule, and they were, led them all because they carried the parts for a... Uh, 45 howitzer on their back. Sure. And uh, so they led those. But our mules, we, we packed ammunition and food and rations, and uh, we would just pack them up and then herd them with a bell horse. So you'd mm-hmm. have 40, 50 mules uh, chasing one bell horse. So what years were you in the Army? Uh, 55 to 58. Okay. So in uh, World War II, did we, were there were, uh, mules sent to uh, Europe or? Oh yeah, yeah. At um, well, there's a lot of mules in Burma. Okay. Uh, with uh, if you talk to Lester Hollenbach, he can tell you a lot about that because Lester was the head horseshoer there for, in Burma for a while, and uh, I think they had like five thousand horses and mules in Burma at one time, and then there was uh, close to five thousand horses and mules in uh, Europe at one mm-hmm. time in the Second World. Right. Yeah. I was uh, I was reading a book called The Perfect Horse, and it was about uh, getting the Lipizzans out of um, Vienna and saving them. And the point in there they made is the Germans said that they had 2.7 million horses in World War II, and they had 80,000 people taking care of these horses. I mean, so even in World War II, when we're getting mechanized, the Germans still had 2.7 million horses in the army. 
Oh yeah, the Germans did a lot with their yeah, especially at the first part. Yeah, with the yeah. horses, packed a lot of ammunition, packed a lot of uh, uh, fuel. Yeah. Oh yeah, they did. And you see some of those old pictures, and there's one after another of them German horses going. Yeah. Yeah. So, tell me a little about your uh, your mule schooling. I mean, it looks to me like you had a great. Uh, career got started here not only in shoeing mules but in horsemanship which a lot of people seem to lack today well yeah you know it's there's so much on uh, uh, training horses and so much done but uh, uh, horses and kids and people understand discipline and a lot of times people lose that right that uh, there's got to be a, a right and a wrong and a yes and a no and and um, uh, it seems like they, they lose a lot of that in the horse training, and it's all feeding them biscuits and giving them kisses, and it doesn't always work that way. Mm-hmm. You talked about taking these mules up to Wyoming. Can you elaborate a little on what that exercise might have been? Well, we in 55, we trucked the mules from Fort Carson to the Army Hospital in Denver. We bivouacked on the grounds there. And then we rode from Denver to Cheyenne. And then we did packing demonstrations and uh, rode in the parade. And uh, they set off the, packed the howitzer in and uh, shot off the, the cannon to start the rodeo every day. And then in 56, they decided that cost too much money to truck them. Mm-hmm. So so we packed from Fort Carson to Cheyenne and then turned around and packed back. And we traveled 15 to 20 miles a day usually. And we would be in the saddle usually by 4.30, 5 o'clock. And then we would be setting up picket lines usually by between 10 and 11 o'clock sometime to get away from the heat of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know that's kind of in that flat country um, in July in, in Colorado it can get pretty warm. So anyway, we we'd bivouac by the middle of the day, and and then uh, the next morning we'd be up at three thirty four o'clock breakfast, feed the mule, well feed the mules first, have breakfast, pack up, and go. And then they had a few trucks that would come for support for carrying some grain and some hay and stuff, and then. Um, of course, beer used to pull in every afternoon <laughs> wherever we were bivouacked, yeah. and they would lay some cases of beer on the floor, and they would say, uh, "When you guys are done, you pick up all your bottles and put them back in, the, in these cases." And they did that every day on the, on that trip to Cheyenne. Well, was that for the mules or for the riders? Well, I was all for the mules. <laughs> <laughs> How many days did it take on that trip to get to Cheyenne? I don't even remember that. I'd have to do some hard thinking, but I, I it was probably twelve to fifteen days. Yeah, I was ge- right. I was going to guess two weeks, so I was pretty close. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was a. You know, I we traveled every every day of the week. Um, you know, it didn't matter Saturdays or Sundays why we traveled, and uh, wherever we would set up, there the locals would come and. Um, check us out and check out the picket lines. And um, a few years ago, we were we were at Cheyenne for the hundredth anniversary, and um, I was sitting there 
with my wife and with somebody else, we were talking about being there in 55 and 56. And young man, which was close to my age, sitting in front of me. And he turned around and he says, were you with the mules back then? And I says, yeah. And he says, oh, my dad, every day we in the afternoon, we'd have to all pack up in the car and see how far the mules made it that day. And we'd drive down and walk the picket lines. <laughs> and, and he was the first guy in all these years I ever ran into, and the only one I ever ran into that uh, knew about the mules going there and, and stuff. So, But it was fun. So in your Army career, did you have to do what normal soldiers do, or did you just spend all your time with the mules? Well, I the first two years I did, I was most, I was, once I became the first platoon horseshoer, then I didn't have to pull guard duty or, or do uh, KP or any of that stuff. Before that, I had to do everything everybody else did. Yeah. And then for about a year, year and a half there, I didn't have to uh, do some of that stuff. Well, then when they deactivated, they actually deactivated December 15th, 1956. And they hung the colors up for the A battery fourth field, and they transferred the colors for for the 35th quartermaster to another quartermaster outfit. And then they put the mules up. They, the Forest Service took quite a few of the mules, and then there was uh, about a hundred of them that were sold at auction. And they had a closed auction. I bought. Three mules for $97. $97 total? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 33 yeah. bucks Thirty-three bucks a mule. Right. Yeah. And then three days after I bought the mules, I got put on orders to go to Fort Eustis, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what the hell? You know, and I had a pregnant dog that just had nine pups, and I got uh, these mules. Well, I sold two of the mules to the Hink brothers, and they were... They were in the, our outfit, and they had a pack string in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So they took two of the mules back to Jackson Hole, and I sold the other one to a guy in Colorado Springs that was in the Shriners. And the Shriners had a mule sure. outfit in Colorado Springs. And um, took my dogs down, my pups down, and had uh, seven of them put to sleep by the veterinarian. And then uh, brought two dogs and my two pups and my bitch dog home to my folks with my truck and uh, left them there. And I went on down to Virginia. And then from there, I went to uh, a cargo checker school. And then I went to spent the summer of 57 at Thule, Greenland. Oh, wow. Unloading, unloading ships, yeah. And then came back. We came back in the fall. And then... In the next March, I was dis- discharged. So, so a summer in Greenland was that like winter in Michigan? Oh, it was terrible. Well, the <laughs> first we pulled in there on the seventh of July. They'd had two icebreakers in the bay breaking ice up, and uh, it was seventh of July. It was about sixty-five degrees, beautiful sunshine. Just couldn't believe it. It was a gorgeous day. And the next day it was just gorgeous. And the next day it started raining. And it rained for 42 days straight, and I think it stayed somewhere around 40 degrees. Wow. And we we spent 12 hours a day working on the pier unloading ships because they got a very short window there to get, you know, from July till September, and, and then they're all done and having ships come in there. And they would unload all the cargo 
in the stuff for the summer. And back then we had the dew line, the radar line that went across Alaska from where Greenland right. across. It was supplies for for that deal too. So it was it was we were busy. Right. Let's go. Uh, let's go back to Fort Carson and talk a little about the farrier instructor you had. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had a guy, uh, R.T. Forney. He was a sergeant first class, had been a master sergeant someplace along the line. He lost his stripe or two. Um, survived World War II uh, and uh, spent most of his time with the mules or the horses in in the Army as a horseshoer. And part of the time in Europe, uh, uh, when they got rid of some of them, then he was uh, just infantry guy. And uh, he used to tell a story. He says, you know, a lot of people say they don't believe in God and they don't pray. But he says, I'll tell you what, when you're on a ship and them, and them uh, suicide bombers are coming in there, coming after you, he says, you got everybody was on their knees. Yeah. I always remembered that story. But he was a good guy. Um, and he, he taught us a lot. And we had another guy there, uh, uh Christensen, he was a master sergeant, and he was a excellent blacksmith and and horseshoer. But I he taught a class after I went through. But I always admired the guy. He was really really a good instructor. And then we had another guy there that was a, a horseshoer from California, uh, Obios, and he was in the A Battery Fourth Field. And Obi got drafted. Um, a little later in life, and he started shoeing horses for RKO Studios when he was uh, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, in his 30s when he when he got drafted, and the rest of us, you know, were in our late teens or early 20s. Yeah, but this guy had more tricks for shoeing, <laughs> and uh, I used to just love go down and watch him. And he would he'd stop by my shop, and one day he stopped, he walking by and. Mank, how you doing? And I saw him having trouble fitting his shoe, and he looked at that shoe. I was walking back to the anvil, and, well, he says, you're trying to put a round shoe on a rattlesnake's head. It's not going to, never going to fit. And I got back and looked, went over and looked at that horse's foot and looked at that shoe in my hand, and sure enough, I had trying to put a round toe in that shoe, and that front foot on that mule was kind of pointed. And I, that was the day I really learned how to look at feet. Yeah, when you were you know preparing the feet, that uh, the shape of that shoe better look like the shape of that foot. Yeah. So when they schooled you, how many other farriers were there? Well, there was two or three other guys shoeing all the time, but there was only three of us in the in that particular class mm-hmm. when I went. And there was there was a horseshoe. Each platoon had a horseshoer, so there were three platoons. And then A Battery had, they had two or three guys working in that one shop. But all the other shops had one or two guys shoeing. Uh, so there was, uh, you know, six guys in the uh, 35th shoeing and two or three guys in A Battery shoeing. But them got, you know, some of them were short timers and, and they were getting discharged, so then. That's what happened with me. The uh, the guy that was uh, second in command at uh, first platoon was getting discharged about the time I got through shoeing school, so I got to be the 
assistant in the shop, and then that that guy got uh, discharged. So then I was the head guy in the shop for the last year. Pretty sad time when they decided to uh, get oh, rid of yeah. the mules. It was. It was really. It was. Uh, there was a lot of guys there that were short timers were real happy because they they got. Uh, two or three months cut off from their duty time because they got rid of the mules. But uh, uh, but all the guys, yeah, most of them, you know, everybody, that, and especially the older guys had been involved. Uh, Pop Knusen was, I don't know, he, he should probably should have been retired, but he was still with the, took care of the officers' horses. And uh, yeah, he, he, you know, they all felt real bad when they got rid of the mules. Yeah. So um, we got. Let's say we got a young farrier out here, and he's doing some backyard horses. And all of a sudden, the guy calls him up one day and says, "I want you to come over and do my two mules." Yeah. Now, now he's done some backyard horses, but he doesn't know anything about mules. What's he got to think about? Oh, just go over there and work on them like they're a horse. But just remember, they can. They can reach out with their hind feet and, and uh, put right up one right on top of your head. But but mules, most of them are are gentle and quiet and uh, and they like to be uh, scratched on a little bit and uh, talked to and and but you, if you start abusing a mule, he'll either get scared at you or mad at you, and then you're in trouble. Yeah, you got to So you got to got to learn your way around them and, and uh, usually treat them good and they'll treat you good. How about the feet? Anything different on the feet? No, they're pretty straight walled and usually pretty pretty tough feet, but um, no, not basically no. You know, you just trim them up and nail them on, yeah. Yeah. Now, you were at the International Hoof Care Summit uh, last uh, year or the, earlier this year in Cincinnati. Yeah, and, and there were these six farriers from Fort Carson. Did you talk oh, to them? Oh yeah, yeah, I had great talk with them. Yeah. So what are they doing these days? What's going on in the army horse-wise with them? Well, they've got a, a reenactment uh, cavalry group there in a color guard, and uh, that's basically what they're were uh, shoers for that color guard outfit. And then there's a shoer, there's probably a shoer or two yet down at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland for the caisson group. Right, right. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been there. We've done a story on the caissons. And, uh, in fact, I got a shoe hanging in my office that was off the Ronald Reagan, uh, funeral procedure. Uh, oh, yeah. In, in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so how are these Fort Carson guys getting trained? I never asked them that. Okay. But they're, they're, they, um, uh, they do allow them to go to things like the, the summit. Yeah, they've been two years in a row, some of them. And yeah, yeah, I met those guys two years ago and then I talked to them again this year. Right. And, uh, and then I think, them, go ahead. One of them, you know, brought a couple other guys over and said, you gotta talk to this guy, he'll tell you stories about Fort Carson. So. <laughs> And I know the American Association of Professional Farriers, they were going to send a couple of guys out there and do a couple of clinics for them. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you get out of the Army, you come back to Grand Rapids. What happens then? Yeah. Married, you start Mary. chewing? 
Mary. Yeah, I started shoeing. I started shoeing with uh, a couple of the old timers. There was one guy in particular I wanted to shoe with, and I talked to him two or three times when I was home on leave. And uh, he had a young guy named Don Zank working with him. That Don was in the class of uh, 55 from Michigan State, where I would have been. And um, and I knew Don from when we were younger, showing horses and being around. And um, he was going to leave in 58 and go off on his own. Well, then when I came out of the Army, uh, Don had decided to stay with him. So I... There was another um, Bud Frost, and I I went and I had worked with Bud different times. When I'd come home on leave, he'd find out I was around because I'd always stop and see some horse people, and he'd find out and he, you want to shoe some horses while you're home, and I'd go shoe <laughs> horses with him. Yeah, and uh, so I started shoeing with him and uh, a couple other guys, you know, here and there, and uh, started building, you know meeting some horse people and I got in the saddle club and, and, uh, I started dating Mary and Mary was secretary at the saddle club. And, uh, it just went on from there. We, we got married and started having kids and my shoeing business kept building. And after about two years, I was off on my own shoeing full time. And before that, I worked at General Motors. I did whatever I could in the wintertime, sold cars, uh, whatever, to keep bread on the table And uh, until I started, you know, shoeing full-time. So what kind of horses were you shoeing? Started out with basic backyard horses, then started shoeing some good uh, strings of quarter horses, and then some Arabs, and, and, uh, and then in 1969... I think it was 69. Gary Stevens and I got in a truck. Gary had got discharged out of the Marines and was shoeing with me. And we got in a truck and we went to Shelbyville, Tennessee, slept on a bale of hay in the back of a truck for a week mm-hmm. and watched these guys shoeing Tennessee walking horses and were amazed, you know. And uh, But we got a good education and uh, learned a lot of the basics and came home and, and we had some walking horses around here that we were shoeing, so we we started shoeing quite a few walking horses for a while. And then that got bad with them doing the blisters and stuff on the walking horses. And uh, when it got where you'd reach for a horse and he'd almost fall down, we decided to quit shoeing walking horses. And, yeah. and that big barn that big barn that was here, they, they moved their operation to Shelbyville, Tennessee, so... And we did a lot of American saddlebred horses, long-footed, gated horses, a lot of show ponies. But we did just about anything that somebody wanted shoes put on, uh, we were doing. We so did that did, way for a long time. Yeah. Um, you you got a son who shoes? I got a son that shoes, and I got a grandson that's starting to shoe. All right. Yeah. They, uh, Mike, Mike's been at it quite a while now. Right. Yeah. So you got a, you still got a mule? No, I had the, you know, I had my tenth knee surgery and my mule had a low ring bone and I, they told me maybe I should quit riding the way I was riding and and uh, I had to put the mule down so I we put the mule down and I quit riding and I took up golf. Hmm. <laughs> a lot of letdown, huh? <laughs> are, are, are you a better golfer or a better rider? 
Oh, better writer by a long time. <laughs> so I was back in East Lansing one time a few years ago, and I went out to the pavilion, and I sit in the stands, and I think it was team roping. And I look out there, and I think, my God, there's a mule out there. And I look yeah. a little closer, and you're sitting on that mule. Yeah. Yeah, well, you that would... was a team penning. Okay, Not... team penning. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did that. I did that with that mule for 12 years. Just had a uh-huh. ball. Yeah. Right. Great. Yeah. So you and Mary kind of, after you got married, had some kids. Did you start a uh, ferry supply store? Yeah. First, I started playing with gas forges. Okay. And I got uh, uh, the, I got gas forge going, and I ran an ad in the Western Horseman, and I got uh, quite a few inquiry letters. And uh, so we started manufacturing gas forges, and... Uh, we did that for about a year, year and a half, and when I and I would go around, you know, different places and and uh, do demos, go to racetracks, and from here to the East Coast, and and uh, so, sold a few gas forges and came home, and and then Charlie Gamera, you ever remember Charlie? Yeah, a little bit. I've heard people talk about him. Yeah, well, he was my first big dealer. I met Charlie at, uh, I think, Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, at a horseshoe shop, a guy named Austin Turcotte. And uh, Charlie, I had about 10 forges left in the back of my truck. I think I left with 13. And uh, Charlie told me, he says, if you can sell him a gas forge, he says, I'll buy everything you got in your truck. <laughs> but you know, I got to have a good price. I said, yeah, I understand that. So anyway, I ended up, Mr. Turcotte said, you ought to buy one of these forges, Char- told Charlie. You ought to buy a forge from these guys. They look pretty good. So anyway, he ended up buying my forges. And and uh, I came home. I was late for Thanksgiving dinner, but I had a pocket full of cash, <laughs> and everybody was happy, and yeah, except my dad, because I missed deer hunting on Thanksgiving morning. So did you have the first gas forge, or were there already some around? Oh, there, there were some around, and uh, I always said we weren't the guy. We never invented anything, but... We were the first ones to successfully market a gas forge. Mm-hmm. And I, I had guys tell me they had patents on gas forges. Right. And so I did a, I hired an attorney, did a patent search, and uh, there were things that were close, but nobody had a patent on a, on a gas forge. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so anyway, I did a, a, that patent pending apply and uh, started uh, manufacturing gas forges and selling them. And I had two guys that I shot horses for that were pretty successful uh, businessmen. Les Tassel, he owned Tassel Manufacturing and uh, a big automobile stamping uh, parts plant. And then another guy named Charlie Warner, and he owned uh, Warner Manufacturing, and they they made Wico uh, milkers for the the, uh, automatic milking business right okay both of those guys told me he says you know you you can apply for a patent if you get it you know if you got something good everybody's gonna fight you for it and the guy with the most money usually wins but if you manufacture something put it on the market and you have it out there for a year nobody can ever stop they might get a patent but they can never stop you from manufacturing right so that's the route i took and uh, if I knew now, you know, 
I would probably have pursued the patent, but I didn't. And uh, we manufactured, and then years later, somebody got a patent on the gas forge, and they told me I had to quit. And, but we proved them wrong, and we still yeah. manufactured. <laughs> so what made your uh, gas forge really take off? What was What was really good about it? Uh, well, it was, it was a clean, fast way to get heat. I think that in the, the biggest thing, you know, everybody says, well, you can't do this. You can't weld. And I always heard that you can't weld with a gas forge. I says, can you weld with a coal? Well, 90% of them couldn't weld with a coal forge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, no, I have a little trouble. I said, well, I guarantee you one thing. If you can't weld with a gas forge, you'll be able to brace with it. And you can brace on toe caulks, you can brace on heel caulks, you can brace on clips, you can brace on jar caulks. You can do just about anything in that gas fire you can do. And that's what I did was go around and do demos and prove how it would work. And usually I would sell uh, in 72 or 73, we went to Bruce Daniels for a contest. Bob Ream and I, and, um, you know, Bob had the horseshoe in school. Right, and, yeah, that howl. Yeah. howl, yeah. And uh, he called me one day and he says, you know a guy named Bruce Daniels? And I says, no, I never met him, but I heard of him. He's got a horseshoe in school and shoes horse standard breads on the East Coast. Yeah, I said, well, they're having a contest at his place. I said, oh, he says, I'm thinking about going. I said, well, when is it? And he told me, and I says, well, I'll pick you up at, Nine o'clock on Thursday morning, I'll put some gas forges and anvils and stuff in my truck and we'll go. Okay, so I picked Bob up, and when we got there, I donated a gas forge to the, to his competition for for the high point, and I got in the bar shoe class in another one or two classes. Bob got into three or four classes. Bob was pretty handy in the fire, but he always used coal. Mm -hmm. Anyway. We, I got in the, the bar shoe contest and it was just, uh, using, um, that diamond long heel extra, extra light, uh, to make a bar shoe out of that. And, uh, when I, when I started up my forge, the next thing I know, I got 15, 20 guys standing around my, <laughs> I said, I said, there's a lot of other guys working here. Oh yeah. But we never seen that's done in the gas forge. So, yeah. so. And I didn't, I didn't win the class, but I made the bar shoe. And uh, Bob Ream ended up being high point winner, and we brought that gas forge back for him. But it was, <laughs> we did a lot of stuff like that. It was fun, you know. And uh, we we bought the American Farriers Journal in uh, 1992, and I remember going to the American Farriers Association meeting in Daytona Beach. So this was '92, and in the competition. I, I, there may have been more than one, but I remember Bruce Daniels was still competing with a coal forge, and right. he was about the only one, and, and he could smoke up that building. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Pens well, I forget what year Pennsylvania was. Was that the year before? Could be. It was it Valley Forge. I've heard yeah. about. It. I was. I wasn't yeah. there, but I've heard about it. The smoke was so thick that you had to bend over to see where you're going inside that building. Yeah. But that was the last year it really got really bad. And then they went to telling everybody you had to use coke to keep the smoke down. And a lot of guys went to gas. There's a lot of different manufacturers, a lot of good gas forges out there. 
Um, you know, and there's a lot of guys selling gas forges and making gas forges today that were at one time were at one of our dealers. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Yeah, but it was great. You know. So I remember '92. Uh, we only owned the journal three or four months, and I came. By, I went back to Michigan. I came by your place, and we did a little neat article that wasn't very long, but it was like five tips you better watch with propane safety. Yeah. 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 So what's, what 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 do people really got to watch with propane? Well, biggest thing is leaks, you know. Mhm. Make sure you got and keep your hoses and everything in good uh shape. And when you got bottles in the side of a cap in the back of the truck, make sure you got a little hose that runs off from the uh safety thing that's built into the tanks in case they build up too much pressure, they let out gas. And to have that so it gets out of the floor of your truck. It doesn't stay in your truck. And secure your bottles. You know, a lot of guys, they just throw them in the back and let them rattle around. You don't want to. Right. Yeah. I don't remember. I mean, I've been out with some farriers, and I don't remember ever seeing one of these hoses to push the gas outside. I know. And, you know, we've done things on that two or three different times. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to do. You just take a scrap piece of garden hose. Put it on a discharge of, and cut it long enough so it'll go through the bed of your truck. And uh, put it on with a radiator clamp over that discharge place on the on the tank, and run it through a hole in the bed of your truck so it just escapes outside. Yeah. And you know, if you're real cold weather and stuff, you don't have much trouble. But when you've got a fresh bottle and it's hot. They'll build up too much pressure, and then it'll just let that gas off in the back of your truck. And if your truck's pretty wide open, there's no problem. But if it captures it in there, and the next time you light a forge or you hit a striker to light a gas torch, why you might have a boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many uh, children do you and Mary have? Uh, four. How many Three grandkids? Four. How many grandkids? Uh, nine, nine grandkids and two great-grandkids. Oh, that's great. So did you encourage your son to go into the business? No. No. I mean, no, but he always, he was my horsey one. Of the four, Mm -hmm. Mike was always the horsey one. Well, when they were younger, uh, Lee and Mike both rode quite a bit. Lee's back into horses now, uh, but he's an industrial engineer. And, uh, uh, but... Mike was always the horsey one, and he decided he wanted to. Uh, so he ended up going to Bob Ream's school, and he worked with uh, my old partner, Gary Stevens, for a while, and uh, just kind of went off on his own and been been doing it every, you know, for years. Yeah. So uh, how is he training your, your, your grandson? Well, the grandson... Uh, He's he's hard to keep up with right now. He's twenty. Well, he's going to be twenty-one. Maybe he was just twenty-one. And uh, but anyway, he's he went to horseshoeing school, and I can't even tell you the guy's name down in Indiana. Oh yeah, I know Uh, who you mean. Yeah, and uh, uh, Troy, I think. Yeah, could be. But anyway, he went to shoeing school down there. He's got he worked with Uncle Mike for two or three years and then worked with another guy and then he went to shoeing school and um, now he's working 
for another guy here, but they they seem to go all over. And I don't know if they're doing Grand Circuit horses or not, but I haven't hardly seen him in about six weeks. He, last I knew, they were going to Kansas City to shoe, uh, and I don't know if the American Royal was going on or what's going on out there. Yeah, but it's if, a little early for the American Royal because I think it's in October or so. But yeah, yeah, but they were so, going out for a big show. Yeah. yeah. So in our September October issue. Uh, our publisher and executive editor, Jerry McGovern, went and spent a day with Bob Pethick in oh, New yeah. Jersey. And uh, Bob's been shooing for 46 years. <clears throat> anyway, he told this story to Jeremy about uh, how he earlier on had always made handmade shoes. He hadn't used any keg shoes. And then he said, Ken Mankel brought these workman shoes into the United States. And he started using them. Tell us about your workman experience. Well... It's like most things in life, it was good and bad, but the shoes, when when I first met, I, I think it was a convention in Texas, I don't know if it was Houston, but but anyway, the the first time I saw the workman shoes, I was kind of blown away. I, they had so many nice shoes, they were punched right, uh, uh, they had lefts and rights uh, patterns with the inside punched a little shallower in the outside, and, um, or a little the outside punched a little deeper, you know, but I, I really liked the shoes and I, I looked at them and I looked at the shoes at the show and, and, um, there was a guy from England that was with, uh, the race nail with a horse, horseshoe nails. Um, I'm having a senior moment. Anyhow. Yeah. Hey, I can't help you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, we, we came back. I talked to workmen's at the, at the convention and uh, after after we got home, we were home just a few days, and this guy stopped that was repping for the uh, nails in England. And uh, I told him how much I – he says, well, why don't you go talk to Mr. Workman about being a distributor? Well, years before that, George Brown had brought some Workman shoes sure. in here. Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't – they didn't sell good, but George was, you know, was in that Arizona country, and they liked them narrower, light, more cowboy uh, shoes than they did that that heavier. But these hunter and jumper guys loved that shoe, and uh, I looked at it anyway. We and Mary and I ended up going to Holland and and uh, spending three days at Workman and went through the factory and saw how they did everything and and uh, uh, ended up being a distributor. And we were for about three years, but that was hard to keep track of the money, the change in the dollar, and all the things that go with it. And it took bigger billfold than I had to keep the thing running right. And yeah. we ended up, uh, he ended up making a deal with uh, Loot. And, uh, right. So, Delta. Yeah, with Delta, and that kind of ended our. They they wanted me to get shoes through Delta, and I says no, I didn't want to do that. And then a few years later, they came back to me once and wanted me to uh, maybe take on their line again, but I didn't want to do it. I says no, you know it's 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 too much, so we didn't do it again. Well, it's like you seeing something special in these uh, workman shoes, and Bob Pethick must have seen the same thing because he said he was only making handmaids up until then, and then he started 
seeing what these other shoes could do for them. Yeah, well, they made a nice shoe, good shapes. Mr. Workman's father that started that. In the, they started in 1908, the same year that Diamond started making horseshoes. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but he figured out how to. Uh, they made them a little different. They drew drew nice clips on them, and uh, you know they were really really nice shoes. Good. And they had they had a few shoes that I could do some modifications on to change them for to make sliding shoes and some stuff out of them. Mm-hmm. And, and I was in the shop there in Holland and I asked one of the guys, I says, how about you got a forge where I can play with some of these and make some, you know, do some changes. And, uh, well, they got a forge and they took me back to it. They had a little forging shop next to their tool room. That there was about a 300-pound anvil, which was way big for anything I needed. But anyhow, they had a coal forge back there, so I lit the coal forge up, and the next thing I know, all these tool makers are in there watching me because they never had seen anybody change one of their horseshoes, huh. you know, drag, make a trailer on them or, or yeah. roll a toe or anything, you know, because they thought that they all should go. And Mr. Workman, if you walk down through there, and he looked through the bends on the shoes that were dropping out finished. And if they had a little slug that pulled back into the nail holes, he was mad. He didn't like to see that. He yeah. wanted all them nail holes clean. Well, that's yeah, that's pretty good. You go over there to get educated on their sh- on their shoes, and you end up educating them on how they can modify them and do some things they hadn't even thought about. Well, yeah, well, you know, the, the two and die guys there, they just... They thought everything's always the same on the horse's foot, but right. you, you and I know it's not. Right, right. Yeah. So you and Mary in retirement, you travel some? Uh, we were. Um, I had a few little heart issues last year, so we didn't do much. We haven't, we don't, we've been working a couple shows for, Thoroughbred and for uh, Rusty Brown's Enterprises with the jewelry, and Mary works in a booth right. there, and I've been working in a booth for Thoroughbred. And other than that, um, we haven't done much the last few years. We used to ski, and uh, with my knees, I haven't been skiing. She still skis, and she still rides a horse. So, uh, but we we just kind of, this year we've been so busy. When we were in the show in Arlington, we got a call from our daughter, Molly, and said, uh, who's your insurance? I said, insurance? Well, you need insurance. Well, the big tree broke and fell on the house. Uh-huh. So, so we had a big old basswood tree in the back, and half of that split off and took the back corner of our house and punched some holes through the roof. And, and um, we were going to go from... Arlington to Tucson to see some friends and then go up to Phoenix and stop at the Browns and then go up into Colorado and see some other friends and uh, just make a long loop coming home. But when we got that call, we worked the show till Friday and as soon as we were packed up Friday, we started back for home. Yeah, and They had the tree off the house and the roof all cleared off and, and tarps on, but um, it was uh, quite a mess in so, Bob, we were glad we came home. And, right. Uh, we're still trying to get back to Colorado this summer. But I, we're just, just finishing up between 
insurance, in contractors, in people not showing up. Uh, we're just getting the house put back together now. We're just finishing up. So one time you told me in your travels <clears throat> that you were a collector of miniature anvils and you hit a lot of flea markets. Yep. Tell me a little about your miniature anvil collection. Uh, I'm up to right a little over 100. I might be up to, I forget now, but my, I used to have them lined up all over the kitchen and then through this thing everything's been pulled out. But I, I just started picking up little anvils, and uh, I've got well over 100, and I've got them made out of deer horn and silver. I don't have a gold one, but I've got silver ones and, uh, you know, brass ones and copper ones, and, and the ones I, the last 10 years, if they don't have a name on them, I, don't, I won't buy them, you know, unless there's something real unique about them. Mm -hmm. And I've got some hand-forged ones that guys made, and yeah. Yeah, it's been fun. Good. Uh, we're going to end up this conversation in a few minutes. Anything I missed that we ought to talk about? No, we don't want to talk about wild women or whiskey, do we? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, Ken, it's been a great conversation. I think our uh, readers and listeners of this podcast will enjoy what you had to say. So I appreciate you doing this for us. I would like to thank Ken Mankel for sharing his experiences as a U.S. Army horseshoer, along with the story behind the introduction of several products to the farrier industry. And special thanks to SmartPak for sponsoring this podcast. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please post them to the podcast page at AmericanFarriersJournal.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks very much for joining us.